Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we open your word, as it is proclaimed, may it lift up and exalt the one who we now behold upon his throne, who we delight and rejoice to know is there interceding for us because he brought the blood of his own sacrifice to be the priest of our intercession. So now, as we look at the history of your people, uh, the temple, your dwelling place, may we all the more delight in um, the eternal kingdom that through this history is being pointed to and declared and prepared even for us. We thank you for this and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me to the book of Ezra. And then from the beginning of Ezra, jump backwards to the last couple verses of 2 Chronicles. Last week we experienced what really ought to have been, what seemed very much like uh, the proper conclusion to Chronicles, to Judah's history. That history which we, in many ways, have been looking at as a church since we opened Ruth together, since we introduced Ruth by looking at Judges. We can look at that long history of God's people. God made a covenant with them. He gave them his law. He brought them to a land. He gave them a temple, a city in which to dwell. He gave them kings. And they repeatedly, increasingly broke that covenant, neglected the temple. The kings became more and more wicked until finally God punished his people. Those last wicked kings, they lost their throne, they were dragged off into exile, the temple was destroyed, many people were killed, a small remnant were carried away as slaves to Babylon. That should have been the end of this history, it really ought to have been, except for this history being controlled by a God who is good and gracious and makes gracious promises to his people. And so, Chronicles concludes with this epilogue, which we see in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you... Of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Thus far the word of the Lord. When Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah, when the temple got burned, the city got destroyed, the people carried off into exile, it would have been almost unimaginable to think that within a generation... A new empire with a radically different foreign policy would arise so different from Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon that all of the exiles who had been dragged off to the capital would be returned and told to carry out their local religions and customs. Almost unimaginable considering the Assyrian Babylonian empires that had been ruling this area up to this point. But that is exactly what happened when the vassal king Cyrus rose up and conquered Babylon. Of course, whether Cyrus knows it or not, as unimaginable as that might be, that was always exactly what was going to happen. And a good student of God's prophets would have known that was exactly what was going to happen. 
not because Cyrus was a likely king to arise, but because this is exactly what the God of heaven and earth had promised would take place for the sake of his people. That though they went into exile, it was always his gracious promise that he would restore them. And that's our first point this morning. God graciously restores the remnant of his people to the law, the land, and the temple. God's fulfillment of his promises to restore a remnant is recorded largely in Ezra and Nehemiah, which we're going to survey a little bit this morning. They function very much as a companion and a conclusion to this history of Judah, which we have been looking at in Chronicles. Those returned exiles that we see in these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, they look a great deal different, very different than the people who went off into exile. Just 70 years earlier, Judah was an autonomous kingdom. At one time, they were a kingdom that had nations and kings coming to them, paying tribute. But now, these returned exiles represent one small nation in one province called Beyond the River that is a part of a very big empire. And in the background of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you just get hints that there are big international events going on. There are empires at war, one empire replacing another. Regularly, the world is in this state of upheaval. No sooner has one king carried out his design, said, this is the way that the world will be. You can trust that my will will be carried out. Then another king comes and replaces him and says, no, this is the way that the world is going to be. For God's people, they would very much feel like they were caught in the throes of these big historical events. One little people in a big world as the Babylonians get conquered by the Medes and the Medes get shifted around by the Persians, etc., etc. The seeming weakness and insignificance of this little remnant of exiles in this big empire would have been very apparent to them as they carried out their daily lives. To us, looking back, these generations seem like really small slivers of history. But to somebody living in history, as each of us are, the things that happen even over a decade, over a year, feel like really important, rock-solid, unchangeable realities. And this sense of their littleness was very apparent every day to those exiles. They found themselves, as they returned, stuck in the middle of this hodgepodge collection of nations which had been redistributed by prior empires into the land that they had once inhabited. And many of these local lords had a sort of syncretism going. They'd come into Jerusalem. They'd been educated according to some of God's law. They kind of saw themselves as God-fearers. They brought some of their old religion. And they were very upset to find the, these exiles returned and placed in the middle of them with a very stalwart dedication to this one religion. And they became very opposed very quickly to restoring the temple or the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And these nations around the, the remnant of God's people regularly expressed this opposition by writing nasty letters to the king about the things that those Jews were doing. And it looked a great deal like siblings getting in a fight and appealing to their parents, wanting, wanting to get somebody punished. Oh, Osiris, oh, Xerxes, look what the Jews are doing. So the Jewish people would certainly feel very powerless as they're surrounded by all these other nations that don't like them very much, and all of them are underneath these foreign powers over whom they feel like they have no control. And yet, time and again, through Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that no matter what's happening in the world, no matter who's opposing them, no matter who is in power, God is always greater, and God is unchanging. And he is constantly committed to restoring this people. And no matter what the world looks like, he will make use of it for his unchanging purpose. We saw that when Cyrus 
this emperor who suddenly took over Babylon was very concerned to see exiles return to their land and carry out their religion. So after these opponents surrounding Judah uh, get upset about the building of the temple, they send a letter to Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes, the current, current king, in Babylon says, fine, yeah, I see that. This was once a, a, an autonomous nation, a, a pretty great people. Okay, that we shouldn't let them rebuild their temple. So he tells them to stop, and the exiles are afraid. So they stop building the temple. So God sends prophets. He sends Haggai. He sends Zechariah to exhort the people to build the temple. And they start building again. And sure enough, their opponents once again say, well, we're going to send a nasty letter to the king. But now there's already a different king. And that king is Darius, and he goes and looks in the archives and sees what Cyrus had decreed. And he not only commands the opponents of Judah that the temple must be built, but he warns them about opposing it. He says, may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. So time and again, you watch the hand of God leading and controlling the most powerful men in the world. Decades after the temple is finished, Ezra the priest is sent to Jerusalem by the emperor who gives him orders to install those who will teach the law and enforce it. This foreign emperor says, you Ezra... According to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Ezra is baffled. That a foreign king, who doesn't call this his God, tells Ezra, I think it's very important that you go and enforce the laws of your God among your people. And Ezra rightly sees how this seemingly impossible scenario could come about. Ezra says, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. So there's this same pattern time and again. No matter whether or not the world is in an entirely different state than it was a decade earlier, God is still controlling the powers of this world for the good of his people. We see it again when years later, Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, hears that the walls of Jerusalem are in shambles. And if the walls are in shambles, the city's in shambles. Nobody can live there. It's unprotected. And he weeps for the city and prays, God, what can be done? And finally gets up the courage to go to the king. And against all expectation, Nehemiah says, the king granted me what I asked to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the, the walls. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. When they try and rebuild the walls, Nehemiah is also opposed by local nobility. So opposed that we hear that people are building with one hand and holding swords with another while other people are watching guards. Nobody is sleeping as they try and patch Jerusalem back together. And finally, those walls get finished. The city of Jerusalem, with the temple inside, has the walls built. And Nehemiah says, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So time and again, as the temple is built, as the law is taught, as the wall is raised up, the exiles, even their enemies, cannot deny that in this world of great powers and constant change, there is a God with a steadfast, unchanging plan for his people. And it is quite clear that his plan for his people is to restore them, to bring them back to the land he promised, to restore the city of Jerusalem, to put his temple in it, to have right worship in that temple. 
But all of this physical, visible restoration that God's working is just a reflection of the restoration that God desired to work in the hearts of his people. Remember, why was the book of Chronicles written, this history that we've been going through? It was to teach this people, these returned exiles, their history, to teach them who they were, who their God was, to teach them why they went into exile, and thus what it would mean to be restored on the other side of exile. They were meant to learn that their identity was not that they were the incredible people who had earned the favor of God. That they were the one that God looked at and said, I really need a people. Oh, I'll pick that one. That is definitely the people who should belong to me. No. They were not more righteous than the Babylonians or the Persians. They were a sinful people, chosen out of a sinful world to magnify God's mercy. And that was the only reason that even after all of their sin, after all that punishment had been rightly dealt, that this people was somehow standing back in their land, rebuilding the temple that they had defiled time and again, seeing the walls restored so that the city of David could be rebuilt even after they had received their just punishment. Not because of anything that they had done, but because of who God is. So our second point this morning is this. The returned exiles can now see God's righteousness, their sinfulness, and their need to repent and rely on His grace. Remember the state of the people of Judah right before the exile. Remember what we heard about Zedekiah, their king. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then we hear that all the people kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets. Now compare that to this people who comes back from exile. God has used this exile as good teaching discipline he sent prophets. You can read about Daniel and you can read about Ezekiel preaching to this people who they are, what their identity is as they're in exile, teaching them what the chronicler has also written his history to teach them. They are learning about their sin. They're seeing it. They're seeing that they deserve punishment, really believing it. And then they're seeing how gracious God really was to them in restoring them from exile. But not just in restoring them to exile, how gracious God had been all through their history going back before the exile, before the kings, before the land, right back to the very beginning. We see these things being clearly taught to the people throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. And I turn to Ezra chapter 9. Let's read Ezra 9, verses 6 to 9, as Ezra prays over the people. Ezra says, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Leave your finger there. 
you see all the things that Ezra is teaching the people about themselves, not just in their restoration, but in who they are going back to the days of their fathers. There's a very similar prayer that we see from Nehemiah when he is praying to God about God possibly allowing him to go and, and re- reconstruct the wall. And Nehemiah comes to God knowing that he can make that request with no presumption. He says, very similar to Ezra, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts, are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Do you see the good news? The very good news which God has taught his people even in exile. To see that who they are, who they always have been, is a sinful people so that they would humble themselves to see the punishment their sin has deserved, but then to see that God redeems sinners by His great power and His strong hand, that that is who God has always been. This is who He was when He chose Abraham. This is who He was when He chose Isaac and Jacob. That's who God was when He listened to the Israelites crying out in Egypt. That's who he was when he brought them into the promised land. That's who God was when he chose the shepherd David to be king of his people. All of Israel's history has resounded with very good news. That God's people were not chosen because they deserved to be God's people. Which means that their identity in relation to God doesn't rest ever in them deserving that place with God. Who they are is sinners like everyone else, but God has compassion and is mighty to redeem sinners. That is what this remnant, finally after seven years of exile, can see, and not just see, but know and trust and believe and even celebrate. One of the main tasks of Ezra within this people is to call them back to the law. That by learning this good news, they can wholeheartedly desire to repent of their sin and renew their faithfulness to this gracious God, not to earn their place with Him, but in response to the grace He has already shown. Now, of course, after the remnant of Israel has learned this, when they've believed and they've trusted, when they've repented and delighted in God's grace, Do they suddenly move on from that good news to become a people who earn their place with God? Does that grace suddenly become unnecessary? Of course not. One of the central problems that these returned exiles face is that many of them during their exile became very involved with the peoples around them. They took wives from the people around them. They gave birth to children who couldn't even speak Uh, or speak the language of God's people who couldn't read his law or know his law. Many of them had assimilated into the cultures around them. So if we turn back to Ezra 9, we can see the reason that Ezra has been remembering God's grace is that he knows he has to continue to bring to God the sins of this people, repenting and needing to rely upon God's grace in the future. So Ezra 9 verse 10 And now, O our God, what shall we say after this, after all this history of grace and restoration? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, saying that the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us 
less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. We see how this returned remnant is confronted with God's holiness, is confronted with his justice. They see this all throughout their history, but through their history, they see this is true of themselves. Learning their history does not teach Ezra and these exiles to look back in arrogance at those foolish people before us, or even to look in arrogance on the Egyptians or the Canaanites that God set his people apart from when he punished those peoples. Just as Israel was always a sinful people kept by God's grace, Ezra sees with his eyes that this is a sinful people that deserve God's punishment. And if they're going to receive anything else from God, it will only be because God is still gracious. The book of Nehemiah, in many ways the end of Old Testament history, culminates in this wonderful scene where Ezra the priest reads the law and the Levites preach to the people and they look back on their history, back all the way to Genesis and they see this good news. And all of Israel is weeping in repentance. All the people now are weeping like Josiah, their good king, once wept when he read this news of God's law. And Ezra turns their weeping into celebration. They celebrate the Feast of Booths, which remembers their time in the wilderness, remembers how God has always been so faithful to them. And this rejoicing turns into a covenant of recommitment to God and obedience to his law. They commit to separate from the nations around them. They will be set apart as God's people, the people that God desired them to be all the way back in Exodus when he first gave them the law. What a wonderful restoration God is working in their hearts compared with who they were before the exile. And then what happens as soon as that recommitment is made? Nehemiah, who is governor now, goes away back to the king for a very short time and returns to find everybody reverting back to the ways that they were before. The Levites aren't being cared for, so they've forsaken their temple duties, their priestly duties. They've had to go work in the field. A foreign noble, Tobiah, has paid off the high priest to have an apartment installed in the temple. Merchants are regularly coming into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day to trade. Now, as disappointing as this is, you can look at this final note in Old Testament history and say, okay, this people is exactly who they have always been. In Chronicles, in Judges, in Joshua, and Exodus, in Genesis. Always a people who are sinful, who deserve God's judgment, that should see their sin, repent, and throw themselves on a gracious God. So these books are full of rejoicing at how gracious God has clearly been. That after all of this history, this people has seen renewal and restoration, a new temple, a new wall, new commitment to the law. But even as they rejoiced in their return, it would be very hard for this remnant returned from exile not to still be filled with longing. Even in their restoration, they were at best a shell of who they were before. As they read Chronicles, as they recounted those great moments in their history during the reigns of David and Solomon over the United Kingdom, even as they look back on those flawed but faithful kings, Abijah and Asa and Hezekiah and Josiah just a few generations before, they read this history, they looked at themselves, they were a restored people, but they were a feeble people. And that weakness pointed them to the main central element of their nation, which had not been restored after their exile. What was still missing? 
It's our third point this morning. Even as the remnant rejoices in their restoration, they are still full of mourning and longing, centered around the desire to see a son of David return to the throne. Now think back on those two verses, that epilogue of Chronicles we read, that concludes this history and brings back all these major wonderful gifts that we have seen through that history. The temple is restored. The land is returned to the people. The city of Jerusalem is being rebuilt. But conspicuously absent from this epilogue is any mention of those men who have up to this point been the focus of Chronicles, the kings of the house of David. There's a king in the epilogue of Chronicles. His name is Cyrus, king of Persia. And even though God is using those great foreign kings to show his sovereignty, I don't care whether this king loves me or wants to obey me, I will make sure my will is accomplished through him. Even though that's a wonderful thing that God is teaching his people, they would still grieve to now be under the rule of kings who did not love them or love God. Kings who did not rest their kingship in God's promises to his people. This morning is expressed in their prayer of repentance in Nehemiah 9. They say, behold, we are slaves to this day, slaves, just as Ezra said, slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gift. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So they know that God has been faithful to them in how God has led them through foreign kings. They've seen the way that God has given them these foreign kings as an act of discipline to teach his people, to mature his people. Yet they still read those promises in Chronicles. The promises God made to David that David's house would stand forever, that there would be an eternal throne in that household upon which David's offspring would sit. And of course, they would still long for the return of the sons of David. Remember that the chronicler told us near the end of that history that these people are still mourning the loss of Josiah, their last good son of David. They are longing for that sweetness of their own king, the one from among them, from David's house, the house of promise, who loved the Lord and loved his people. This sense of loss permeates even those good gifts which the remnant was seeing restored around them. We see that in the construction of their new temple. When Zerubbabel, the first governor, and, and the exiles are opposed by those nations around them as they're building the temple, they reply, we are the servants of the God of heaven and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. When that foundation of the temple is finally laid, when the people come together and they look at that foundation and they see that their temple is going to be rebuilt, we get this incredibly profound moment where we watch their rejoicing at God's faithfulness and their weeping and longing come together in this bittersweet moment. We see in Ezra 3, verses 10 to 13. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. 
What a profound expression pouring out from the heart of this people. So much to rejoice about. The reconstructed temple, God's commitment to once again dwell in his house with his people. What a beautiful picture they get to see of God's faithfulness, of the peace that he is willing to restore in the land. And yet it is also a picture of such loss and such longing. This was not the temple the great king of Israel had built. This is not the temple raised up by a son of David, by David, king of Israel. Because there was no great king of Israel to build this temple. The temple reminded the people that this once great nation with its once great kings was now a little nation in one province, in another king's empire. The little temple of Ezra, the patchwork walls of Nehemiah, those were gifts of grace that still left this people wondering, had their sin made it impossible for them to really fully return to the splendor of the kingdom under its kings, to that past glory of the city of David and the temple of Solomon? In the books of Haggai and Zechariah, remember those prophets that God sent to exhort the people as they were building the temple, we see this loss and longing which characterized the exiles. We see that despite their sin, God's grace was not just that he was going to restore them, but that he was promising them a glorious future beyond even their past glory. Haggai promised the people that God was going to make his temple glorious. Haggai 2 says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. See how God swears repeatedly by who he is, by his grace, that he will restore greater glory to his household than the former glory of his house when it was the glorious house that Solomon had built for him. Glory that's going to come in from all the nations so that the glory of God's dwelling will not just reflect in one little city, in one little province, even in one little empire, but that that glory of the temple will be displayed from the world over. Now Haggai centers these promises. God gives these promises particularly to Judah's first governor, Zerubbabel. Haggai says, on that day, the day when he shakes the nations, when the treasures come in, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Who was Zerubbabel? Why did God have Zerubbabel there overseeing the construction of this little temple? Why did God choose him? In fact, although he was not a king, Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. Though he wasn't allowed to rule as a son of David, God was still guarding David's line. God says, there they are, and I have still chosen them. And you will see Zerubbabel's name appear again in the New Testament, in the genealogies which establish the right to rule of the future son of David, whom God was sending to accomplish this glorious bringing in of the wealth of the nations to his dwelling place so that one day all the world and his people could live in peace. Zechariah, who's also prophesying at this time, very similarly binds up the hope that these exiles could have in the house of David. He also promises that glory is coming that will overshadow the greatest glories of the past. Zechariah says, And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. 
On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who may have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So again, the hopes of Israel's deliverance there is bound up in this line of Davidic kings that seems at this point to have utterly failed. But the hope for that house itself is bound up in the mercy of God. A mercy which is going to be poured out on all of God's people when they look on him whom they have pierced. Then Zechariah says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Zechariah speaks to this people who God has preserved time and again in the midst of their sin. They feel like they're caught in this cycle. They sin, they fall, they repent, God picks them back up again. And that feels like it's just going to go on forever. But God's greatest promise in the midst of this weakness and their longing is that he's not just going to be gracious to continue this cycle of fall and restoration, but he is going to cleanse them of sin entirely one day so that they will never fall again. Lasting hope for this people, a possibility of seeing glory even greater than David or Solomon, requires not just God to forgive sin, but to cleanse sinful hearts so that they could never fall again, so that no more punishment would ever need to be laid upon God's people. And that promise is bound up in the longing for the house of David to rule again. The days would come when God would not just set a son of David upon a throne, but when the house of David would be like God. No more wicked sons of David subverting their office. No more imperfect sons of David who couldn't preserve a lasting hope for God's people. The days were coming when another David, a man after God's own heart, who was him, would be himself even like God. And from his house would come a cleansing which would flow out to all of God's people, a fountain to cleanse the land. This is how the future son of David would accomplish what David and Hezekiah and Josiah failed to do. Zechariah hints how this cleansing will pour out how God will somehow deal with sin so that this people will not be forever stuck in a cycle of sin and repentance, but will one day be fully restored. How will God's grace and mercy pour out? Will pour out as they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Who is me here? Is it the son of David? Is it God himself speaking? Zechariah is, of course, pointing to that future day when the son of David, who was himself God, would fully and perfectly fulfill God's promises to David and to Judah. His eternal throne would be established. The people would be cleansed. Jesus Christ was the descendant of David who was himself the son of God, who was God himself. He was the king that God had sent to fulfill all his promises to David and to his people. Not the king they expected. He was the king that was pierced. Pierced for their transgressions, as Isaiah said. And from that piercing, from the spear in his side and the nails that held him to a cross would pour forth a fountain of cleansing, just as Zechariah had promised. 
This is how God's grace would not just preserve, but restore, but even lift up God's people beyond their greatest imagining, beyond their greatest righteousness under David, their greatest glory under Solomon, their greatest rejoicing under Josiah. Through his death, Jesus would atone for sin so that this people could be cleansed, and his resurrection from the dead would be the first assurance that his death would surely lead to an everlasting kingdom, even a kingdom of everlasting life, so that weak and feeble, sinful exiles like those in Judah could look forward to the greater days than those, who had, that those which had come before where sin abounds. Sin that tears down temples, that destroys peace in the land, sin that leads to exile. Grace abounds all the more to bring God's people in, to restore them, to build them up and establish an eternal dwelling with God and peace with Him forever. We now get to look at the first fruits of that glorious kingdom which was established by Christ, which will fully be fulfilled when he comes again. As cleansing goes out from the house of David, treasures come in from the whole world. Even we, who Peter called living stones, whose faith is like gold to God, are built up into a household for God as we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus to become treasures in God's house. What a glorious picture of what Jesus' death has accomplished and is accomplishing and will accomplish. As we close our history of Israel, I expect that many of you right now don't feel very much like that glorious picture of the kingdom of God. I expect we struggle to see that glorious picture in the world around us. We feel a great deal more like these returned exiles in their little province than we feel like Israel when it was ruled by the great kings, David and Solomon. We feel more like a little people tossed to and fro on the waves of a world kings and powers acting for their own good, acting for their own glory. And then we read God's word, and even as we're confronted with the powers of this world, we are all the more confronted with our sin, our weakness, the justice we deserve, just like those returned exiles felt it. This is when we can look at this long history of God's people that we have surveyed, and know that we have a God who is not just sovereign over history, but is working all that history for the good of his people, even despite their sin, because he is compassionate and gracious to those sinners who belong to him. You might feel like the church is a little boat being pushed about by the waves of the world, and that you're always supposed to be afraid of what the future will bring, what the next wave is going to do. But friends, who controls the ocean? Who can calm the storms? Our God controls every wind and every wave, and he is directing the whole course of that ocean for the specific purpose of guiding this ship, which he loves so dearly, through the exact route that he has ordained for it to get to its safe harbor. The people of God going back to Abraham, whether they looked strong or weak to this world, whether they looked great or small, is always the people of God always being directed and all of history being directed around them and intricately planned for the glory of their God the glory of the salvation of his son, and thus for the good of them as his people. I love the term that Peter uses when he introduces his readers to themselves in his letter, the elect exiles. That's who we are. 
Yes, you feel like strangers and exiles in the world. You feel neglected and mistreated by those who look like they're at home here. But you were elected to be so. It was God's will that you be so. Elected to belong to a greater kingdom. And your exile in this life, just like Israel's time in Babylon or the wilderness or among the other nations, that's a time that God specifically ordained to sanctify you and to prepare you to reach your home country, the promised land, where you will rest in the presence of your eternal king, our son of David. He himself endured his time of exile, didn't he? Away from his place of glory, despised, rejected, in ways that we cannot imagine. And he did that to secure our safe harbor for us. So that cleansing could go out from David's house, so that treasures could come into God's house. Until Jesus' cleansing and God's dwelling covers all the world and we behold a glory which will make the best days of David and Solomon seem like those pale foreshadows that they are. Not because we deserve to live in that kingdom. We deserve worse than this short time of exile. But because God made good promises. He made them to Abraham and Moses and David and to Jesus. Promises that he would save a sinful people for himself. That he would be gracious, patient, compassionate towards them. That he would glorify himself by bringing in and redeeming and cleansing them through the blood of his son until all his promises are fulfilled and his people surely dwell forever in the kingdom of peace that we have with and through our eternal King, our Son of David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that there are greater days of glory coming than those that have come before. That this wonderful history at its best moments, David, Solomon, Josiah, is a picture for these weak returned exiles, even for us as we feel like exiles, of the glorious eternal kingdom that Christ's cross brings about, the cleansing, the bringing in of treasure, so that the glorious days of your house might be greater even than the greatest days of the temple of Solomon. Father, we thank you that these are promises made to sinful people, not that we deserve our place in this kingdom, but that you are gracious to receive us in it through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on our behalf. And I pray that all those here would trust in that sacrifice, that death and resurrection, and then would rest secure and assured of their place in that eternal kingdom resting in the good promises that you have made, where we will praise and glorify our Savior, our King, our Son of God, Son of David, Jesus Christ, forever. Amen.